So my question today, in times of despair, what's the solution? What's, what's the remedy? What's the antidote? And oftentimes we jump quickly to hope. Hope is the antidote to despair. That, that's the cure. That's the, and yet, I believe that that's kind of jumping ahead. Because the real question is, what brings hope in times of despair? And that's a harder question. To not gloss over hurt and pain and suffering and tragedy, but to fully look at it and objectively process it and and deal with it. What brings a cure and an answer and a solution to the despair that we often feel, especially in times like this? And I believe that King David provides the answer in Psalm 27. And I'm going to have you turn there later, but not right now. Right now, I just want to quote what he says in Psalm 27, verse 13. He said, I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And we're going through the fruit of the Spirit right now. And our our topic today is goodness. Goodness which is a very fun topic to deal with in the midst of all the hurt that's happened this week. The goodness of God, which is the very thing that people question, especially in an unbelieving world. How could a loving, good God ever allow that to happen? That's what we want to wrestle with today. In the Hebrew, grammatically speaking, I love how different languages often emphasize things by putting them up first and foremost, in in the sentence structure, even though they don't make sense as we read them, they emphasize what's important. And in the Hebrew, it reads that, um, unless I believed, unless I was assured of the goodness of God, I would have despaired. So it's, it's the belief and the assurance that God's goodness touches upon this and makes a difference. Unless I believed that, unless I had that conviction and that assurance in my heart, in my very being, I would have despaired. That's what David says to us today. And I, I want you to look up from your Bibles for a moment, and I want you to just think with me. I want to do a kind of a visualization, visualization here for a moment. I want you to think back when you were really young growing up. I know there was somebody in your life that epitomized goodness, Who was it in your life that when you were around them, when you were in their presence, maybe it was a mom, maybe it was a dad, maybe it was a grandparent, maybe it was someone that you weren't even related to biologically, but they had your best interest in mind. They were invested in you. And when you were in their presence, everything was right in the world. Even if all hell was breaking loose, Everything made sense. There was that calm. There was that security. I want you to think for a moment who that person was. And I want to suggest to you that it, that is only a glimpse of our loving Heavenly Father and His goodness that is available to us. Paul says a very powerful thing in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. Vaguely, 
It's foggy, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully, just as we have been fully known. I love how the New Living Translation puts it. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Friends, I want all of us to understand today that the goodness of God encompasses every aspect, every facet of his character, of his nature, of who he is. It speaks to his righteousness, his purity, his grace, his love, his mercy, his, his, um, his integrity, his omniscience, the fact that he knows all things. Every aspect of God's character is embodied and encompassed by the phrase and the idea of the goodness of God. And we've been talking throughout this series that it's not about the fruit of the Spirit that we live out in our life and try and do this and try and do that, but it's about a work that God does inside of us. It's about, it's about being rather than doing and allowing God to transform our lives as we yield to Him in obedience. And I don't think there could ever be a quality or a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit that is more true than this. You and I can never, ever be good by trying. Scripture says all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Even our best doesn't meet up to God's standard. The only way to be declared good is to have imputed righteousness, righteousness that God ascribes to us because of our relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the finished work of Christ on the cross, what He accomplished on our behalf, the forgiveness, the cleansing, that he offered to each one of us that would believe in him as the way, the truth, and the life, and as the only one to get to the Father. That is how we are declared good. That's why as we sing in the hymn, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before the throne. That's the only way we approach a living God. That's the only way we have a relationship with God. But goodness, out of all the qualities, I can try and be loving, I can try and be patient, I can try and be joyful, I can try and... But good? I am not good. And you are not good. Let's understand that. And so it's all about the goodness of God. And friends, what God does flows out of who He is. And what we really need to understand is that Everything that God does is filtered and processed through the goodness of His character and nature and His love for us. The goodness of God is what assures us that one day every wrong will be made right. That every injustice will be rectified. And that God will bring purpose and meaning to everything. That nothing will remain senseless and pointless. That although so many things don't make sense now as we look through a mirror dimly and it's all fogged up and things are not clear, one day we will see Him face to face. 
And yes, we will have all of eternity to ask him questions, but I believe the scripture that says we will know fully just as we are fully known. As we are transformed into his perfect image, we're not going to have questions. It's all going to make sense. And it will all be something that we can swallow and say, yes, I affirm you are good. You never cease to be good and faithful. I want to I take you back today in Scripture because I want to show you where the, the idea of the goodness of God comes from. And so if you want to turn with me, you're welcome to. If you just want to listen, you can do that as well. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you underneath if you want to grab it. And we're going to start in the Old Testament in the front. We're going to look at Exodus 33. And I'm going to read from Exodus 33 today, and I'm going to read from Psalm 27. So if you want to put a finger in both, you can. And uh, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. Meaning that if you practice these things, no one's going to hassle you. No one's going to arrest you. No one's going to give you trouble because this is the fruit of God's Spirit. And I want to look at Exodus 33 today. I'm reading down the New Living Translation. This is what we read. The Lord said to Moses, Now that you have brought these people out of Egypt, lead them to the land that I solemnly promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I told them long ago that I would give this land to their descendants. I want you to notice here for a moment that humanly speaking, God is distancing himself from his people. I want you to lead this people. He doesn't say my people. He's ticked with them right now. They have been rebellious. They have been sinful. They have served and worshipped other gods. And he has had it. And so he said, I want you to take this people. I'm not even claiming them right now. I want you to take this people and lead them to the place that I promised. And yes, I'm a God who keeps his promises. So even though I'm not happy with them right now, I'm still going to follow through on my promise. Verse 2. I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Theirs is a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not travel along with you, for you are a stubborn, unruly people. If I did, I would be tempted to destroy you along the way. And they're going, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Don't come with us. Just watch us. That's cool. We're good with that. Most of the time we want you, but that's good. Just cool off a bit. Verse 4, when the people heard these stern words, they went into mourning, and they refused to wear their jewelry and ornaments. You're like, what's up with that? He's going to tell us. For the Lord had told Moses to tell them, you are an unruly and stubborn people. If I were there among you for even a moment, I would destroy you. Remove your jewelry and ornaments until I decide what to do with you. So from that time that they left Mount Sinai, Israelites wore no more jewelry. Can you picture this anyways? They're wandering through the desert, and they're dressed in their Sunday finest and wearing all of their jewelry. And God's like, please, you're making me sick. You know, you're like people that come to church all dressed up and looking so, and and you've been at each other's throats all week, and you've been hypocrites, and you've been liars and connivers and schemers and manipulators, and you, you know, cut the dress, cut the jewelry. You're out in the desert. You're not impressing anybody. You know, put it away and focus on your heart for a moment. Verse 7, it was Moses' custom to set up the tent known as the tent of meeting far outside the camp 
Everyone who wanted to consult with the Lord would go there. Whenever Moses went out into the tent of meeting, all the people would get up and stand in the tent entrances, in, in their tent entrances. They would all watch Moses until he disappeared inside. As he went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and hover at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Then all the people would stand and bow low at their tent entrances. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Afterward, Moses would return to the camp, but the young man who assisted him, Joshua, son of Nun, stayed behind in the tent of meeting. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, take these people up into the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. Not true. God said, I'm going to send an angel with you. But that wasn't good enough for Moses. You call me by name and you tell me I have found favor with you. Please, if this is really so, if this is really true, show me your intentions so I will understand you more fully and do exactly what you want me to do. Besides, don't forget that this nation is your very own people. So now Moses is throwing them back like, I don't want these people. I was out shepherding. And you spoke to me in a burning bush and wanted me to leave. These are your people, not mine. You know, like, I, I, he's throwing it back on God. Verse 14, the Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't let us step from this place. If you don't go with us, how will anyone ever know that your people and I have found favor with you? How else will they know we are special and distinct from all the other people on the earth? And the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and you are my friend. Then Moses had one more request. Please let me see your glorious presence, he said. And the Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name, Yahweh, to you. I will show kindness to anyone I choose, and I will show mercy to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, Stand here at this rock beside me, and as my glorious presence passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. I've read this many times, and if you had asked me from memory to, you know, how did God respond, I'd say, well, God showed Moses' glory. But specifically, God says, I will allow all of my goodness for you to behold. So you're despairing right now. You're frustrated with these people as well. This isn't your idea of fun to be wandering out in the wilderness with, you know, two million Jews who are complaining and griping about the manna and the quail and all of the other miracles that I'm working daily for them. And I'm trying to encourage you. And the way I'm going to encourage you, the antidote and the cure, the solution for your despair is for you to absorb and to take in all of my goodness. Powerful. Flip over to Psalm 27. The Psalm of David. Psalm 27, again from the New Living Translation. The 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? The Lord protects me from danger. So why should I tremble? Let me stop just for a moment and just the context of this. We forget, you know, when you read through the Psalms and sometimes David is like, you know, kill and persecute my enemies and pay them back and protect me. And we forget that David was a warrior. David was crowned the king of Israel by Samuel and then spent decades of his life fleeing from Saul and the armies of Israel who were out to literally kill him because Saul would not have it out of jealousy and out of stubbornness. Um, David is not speaking about somebody who cut him off on the road, you know, or took his parking place, petty things that you and I get all worked up about. This was life and death. He spent years hiding in a cave, you know, and so when David is speaking about his enemies and deliverance and God being his fortress, it means something entirely different than what you and I experience daily. Verse 2, when evil people come to destroy me, and when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, which it did many times, my heart will know no fear. Even if they attack me, I will remain confident. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek the most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfection or as the New American Standard says, in his beauty. Stop there for a moment again and understand that at this time, God dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies, or the Tent of Meeting, inside of his house. I never really understood this as a kid, because growing up, I I wasn't fond of church buildings. They were dark, they were musty, they were kind of creepy, they seemed lifeless, they seemed very ritualistic. And there was nothing about that that said to me, oh, God is here, or I want to hang out here, you know. And I never, ever in a million years would have ever gone into the ministry based upon that. And we need to understand, David's not talking about hanging out in a house because it's so cool. He's talking about hanging out where God's presence is. That I might live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections or beauty and meditating in his temple. Verse 5. For God will conceal me there when troubles come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of the reach, out of reach in a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle I will offer sacrifices and shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. Listen to my pleading, O Lord. Be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. Do not hide yourself from me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God of my salvation. If my father, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the path of honesty. For my enemies are waiting for me to fall. Do not let me fall into their hands. For they accuse me of things I've never done and breathe out violence against me. Yet I am confident that I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. Again, it's more than that. David says, if I didn't believe and I wasn't assured that I would see the goodness of God, I would have despaired. Verse 14, wait 
patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. I want to just make three simple points today. And they're all about how we experience the goodness of God. And I believe they're all fundamental and key and foundational. And the first is experiencing God's goodness involves trusting his heart. It involves trusting his heart. If you don't trust the heart of God, you will never, ever see or experience his goodness. And I know there are those of you today that are here that that don't fully believe in God, don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. And may I say this lovingly but firmly, that this is one aspect of God that will never, ever make sense to you until you know him personally. It's like having a personal relationship with somebody. You never know their motives and their heart until you really get to know them. You can't just pick up on that by watching them from a distance. And when I talk about trusting the heart of God, I'm talking about his intentions and his motivation. And again, I'm not talking about, as we say oftentimes in life, well, you know, they they had really good intentions. They had really good motivation about people that, really wanted good but didn't have the power to make it happen and so you know just you need to understand their intention and their motivation was this even though it went no we're talking about a god who is supremely powerful who desires and intends good for you and I and has the power to make it happen but it starts with his intentions and his motivation in his heart that desires to do good even though he has every right to judge and to punish In the Gospels, in both Mark and Luke, when the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember how Jesus responds. Why why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. And he doesn't say that because he's denying his divinity. He says that in order to, to draw this guy in. Do you have any idea what you're saying? Only God is good perfectly good in all of his nature and character and it it guides and governs all that he does do you understand that i am him or are you just trying to flatter me by calling me good then he goes through the commandments go out and keep these and the guy says well i've done all those since my youth and jesus says well go out and sell everything that you have then and hits at the heart of the issue that the things were more important to him than a relationship with god but again Jesus is getting us to recognize that the goodness of God has to do with his character, his nature, with who he is, that governs all that he does. David says in Psalm 25, verse 8, The Lord is good and does what is right. In Psalm 119, verse 68, You are good and do only good. Then the famous Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness... And unfailing love, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. I was telling Brittany last week that we have to sing that song, The Goodness of God, which we're going to sing after the sermon again because it not only speaks to kindness, but it speaks to goodness. And I love the line, your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Because in the, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, it literally means to persecute meaning like following and pursuing in order to catch and to capture. Your goodness is chasing after me. It's the hound of heaven on my heels to embrace me, 
in your goodness and your wholeness and your blessing. That's the goodness of God. It's running after, running after me. Author Jen Wilkins says, God's goodness is a light that radiates through all of his other attributes. It is the reason that his omnipotence, possession of all power, and omniscience, possession of all knowledge, and sovereignty, possession of over all control, are a comfort instead of a terror. What is she saying? Because God is good, the fact that he's all-powerful and all-knowing and in control of everything is comforting because it's guided by his goodness when he could just wipe us out, like when he was angry at the Israelites and said, you know, I just, I, I'd like to destroy you right now, but I know that's not in your best interest. Trusting God's goodness, first and foremost, foundationally begins with trusting his heart. Secondly, I believe it, it involves trusting his plan. His plan, the, the path that he has for your life and for my life, throughout life. And, and I want to say here, please do not make the error and misunderstand that this world in which we live is not a picture of God on the throne. We often think that. Most of our life, life goes along and we enjoy life and the privileges and the freedoms we have. We think, this is pretty good. I could do this forever. And then we have weeks like this week where we're like, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Because this world is going to hell in a handbasket and I'm tired of the hurt. I'm tired of the sin. I'm tired of the, the pain and the suffering. And, and friends, this life is not designed to be a picture of God. It's, it's a picture of Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And our experience in this life should make us long for heaven and for when God is sitting on the throne and in control, increasingly more and more and more. Not kind of like, God, don't come, don't interrupt my party, but God, please come and intervene because things are getting out of hand. That's what the human experience is designed for. That's God's plan. His good to, goodness to us now is a foretaste of his future reign. And it's an invitation for all the world, as Psalm 34, 8 says, to come and taste that the Lord is good. Come and taste that the Lord is good. Psalm 31, 19 says, How great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. You lavish it on those who come to you for protection. Blessing them before the watching world. Blessing them in view of all of the world. And that's, isn't that exactly what Moses had argued with God in Exodus 33 that we just read? How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people of the earth. God, bless us, protect us, be with us, because that's what sets us apart from everyone else. That's what everyone is looking to, to see how you react to us to know whether they want that for them. So God, please do that. We all know Jeremiah 29, 11 so well. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Trusting in the plan of God, the plan of God. I told this story years ago before some of you were even born here at CBC, and, and uh, many of you maybe don't remember it, but my, my mom's mom, my maternal grandmother, was Frances Sweet. Her maiden name was Greeby. 
and she lived in Dusseldorf, Germany. And she had um, 11 brothers and sisters. And when my grandmother was born, she was born really early, really prematurely. And they literally put her in a shoebox. She was so small. And they didn't know if she was going to live. And of course she did live, or I wouldn't be here, and my mom wouldn't be here. Um, but a long story short, when they, when they left Germany and when they immigrated to the United States, at that time the laws in the United States were that nobody with mental challenges could come. And my grandmother had an older brother named Walter who was 11 years at the, at the time, and they had to leave him behind in Germany. So the whole rest of the family's going, and he has to stay behind. And again, long story short, he comforted his parents by saying, it's okay, Mom and Dad, whatever God does, he does well. And I, I listened to that today, and I still can't believe that those words came from an 11-year-old, because that was God speaking his truth through the mouth of a babe. Like an 11-year-old doesn't understand that. But whatever God does, he does well. And friends, that sums up the plans of God. The plans of God do not always make sense to us. Very often they don't. But whatever he does, he does well. And we know that because we have trusted his heart. And even when his ways don't make sense, we trust his heart. The last thing is trusting God's timing. Trusting God's timing, his omniscience, and his purpose guides everything that he does. And my question to you, and probably everybody in the room except our Bible scholar over here, Mark Patterson, could not tell us what Jeremiah 29.10 says. Jeremiah 29.11 says, I know the plans that I have for you to prosper you. But Jeremiah 29.10 says, this is what the Lord says, you will be in Babylon in captivity for 70 years. But then... I will come and do for you all of the good things that I have promised and will bring you home again. As Americans, we're so like immediate gratification. The wonderful promises that we claim and hang on the fridge, you know. What if you had to wait 70 years to experience that? Generations. God keeps his promise, but not in our timing. And that's hard. That's a hard thing to swallow. Our own passage uh, Psalm 27, the last verse, verse 14. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Trusting God's heart is true. Trusting His plan is true. Trust His timing. God is not fiddling around with you. He's not toying with you. His plan is perfect. His timing is perfect. He knows what He's doing. We are not to question that. We are to find rest and peace in that. Um, again, Psalm 34, I love the action words there, you know, rest, rest and I mean, trust and, and um, delight, and, and the last thing is rest. After we've trusted and delighted and committed and all the things that we're called to do, then we find the rest, and how true that is. Listen to the words of Second Peter for a moment in terms of God's timing. Second Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Peter says, I want you to remember what the holy prophets long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the past, in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, whatever happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? 
From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world has been created. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends, that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not really slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake, for the Lord does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. The redemptive heart of God is what controls his timing, friends. God is not concerned about our comfort and our expediency and our pleasure and our own personal agenda. God is concerned that not a single person will spend eternity apart from him, out of his presence, if at all possible. And that's why he is delayed. And that's why he delays in this timing. Because his heart is that everyone would know him and have a relationship with him through Jesus Wayne Stiles, in his book, Waiting on God, says, Because the results of God's sovereignty are delayed, waiting remains an act of faith. We believe that results will come one day. By waiting on God, we affirm our belief in His providence. We trust His timetable. We hope in heaven. Waiting on God is inseparably bound to our belief in the sovereignty of God to bring about the good that He promises. (coughs) Excuse me. Waiting is often the application of many biblical qualities of character. Hope, for instance, requires waiting. Faith is about waiting. Patience and waiting are yoked together. Trust requires delayed gratification. In fact, run down the whole list to the fruit of the Spirit and see if waiting doesn't play into every single one of them. Friends, it's all about waiting. It's all about Trusting God's heart, trusting his plan, and trusting his time, his timetable. I'm going to wrap this up and land the point. There's a, there's a beautiful verse in Acts chapter 14, Acts 14, 16 to 17, and it happens when um, the people of, of these two neighboring towns are literally worshiping Paul and Barnabas because of the things that they're doing, and they're thinking that they're Greek gods. They think that, you know, Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes or vice versa, I forget which. But they're, they're about ready to offer sacrifices to them. And this is, among other things, what Paul says. In the past, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways. But he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. That's basically how they're trying to turn them back to the living God. And hey, don't worship us. We're just men. We're just mouthpieces. We're messengers. Worship him. And the, the point here is that in the past, God let people do what they want. He gave us free will, but he never left a generation without evidence of himself and his goodness. And friends, sometimes it's hard to see that evidence and those traces of God at work, but that is our job. And I want to remind you of our calling as we close in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Why? Why? As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Let's pray.